Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. We've become accustomed to the idea of trade in the 20th and 21st centuries as being free. Even though that might be the case, we also have many politicians arguing for revised free trade agreements like Donald Trump's slight refashioning of NAFTA. You might also think of Brexiteers who wanted to take back control from the EU. They believed erroneously that leaving the European bloc would not necessarily mean a redrafting of a trade agreement, but most Brexiteers actually wanted to keep free trade after the divorce. And so, much to their chagrin, the trade agreement took three years to rework, and it's still not really to their liking. We're having these debates and these arguments now about free trade, and it's been going on for some time. I mean, you could think back to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade in the 1940s, the foundation of the World Trade Organization in the 1990s. The notion of free trade has been the bedrock of globalization. And the resistance to things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, they seem like small protests set against a general consensus that free trade is a good idea. Of course, this wasn't always the case. Britain had long been a champion of the free trade idea. It was an outlier in the 19th century. And what does free trade really mean? The 20th century has seen varying interpretations of this idea in practice. Mark William Palin has been writing about the idea of free trade for more than a decade now, and he joins the show to discuss his latest book, Pax Economica, which seeks to explore the intellectual roots of the idea of free trade, its application, and where the reality of globalization strayed from the intonations of these thinkers. So strap in for a whirlwind ride, because Pax Economica trots the globe with left-wing thinkers from the United States, the UK, Russia, France, Japan, and Germany, among others. And it explores the institutional positions alongside the views of these individuals. It's great to have Mark on the show. He's professor of imperial and global history at the University of Exeter in the UK and the author of several outstanding articles on diplomatic history and a wonderful book on the transatlantic economic roots of free trade and Cobdenism called The Conspiracy of Free Trade, the Anglo-American Struggle over Empire and Economic Globalization. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. Well, it's great to see this book out, not least because you and I have talked about it in the past and... Uh, and your work has done so much to correct uh, many misconceptions that are out there about economic history and thought and international relations. And we're back with a book that is busting assumptions again. Uh, but let's start off like with the beginning. So your book explores intellectuals who shared a faith in free trade as the basis for world peace. And that's what that's, this book is about. But I was wondering if you could say, who are these thinkers and what brings them all together in the book? Yeah, I, I mean, the the key, I guess, way of kind of putting them under our umbrella is I, I, I keep them within this uh, 
these intellectual leaders and, and uh, activists who led the uh, international peace and anti-imperialist movements from the mid 19th century uh, up to as close as I could get to today. Um, and and I have to say, I didn't know exactly where that was going to lead when I started this, but the, the, the cast of characters became quite broad indeed, but also I thought rather, rather surprising at times. Um, and so one of, one of the key ones that um, really kickstarts these things, who kickstarts the, the free trade movement in Britain uh, and then becomes a leader of the international peace movement uh, and who I think kind of develops this idea of connecting free trade with peace and anti-imperialism in a very big way is this guy, Richard Cobden. Um, this British industrialist and, and politician uh, on the left of the, the political spectrum in, in the UK, uh, who also, of course, plays a big part in, in the first book, but uh, kind of looking at his influences, ideological and political influences on the peace movement beyond the United States in this in this case. Um, and, and some of those are kind of like, the, like the, in the United States, there's a lot of Hugh Burrett, uh, um, uh, in Spain, we've got some some really fascinating uh, liberal politicians and, 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 and economists and, and uh, educational reformers like Figueroa and Rodriguez. Uh, in Italy, you got Alfredo Pareto. Um, uh, France, you've got Frederick Bastiat and Frederick Passy, who I think gets the first Nobel Peace Prize ever. Um, so at least at that point, kind of recognized for, for some of his work. Henry George, who, who I think has popped up on this podcast quite a bit. Um, David Wells, Edward Atkinson, um, Clarence Darrow makes a little cameo. Uh, uh, um, Mark Twain, Leo Tolstoy, Sun Yat-sen, um, Jay Hobson, Jane Adams, Roska Schwimmer. Uh, anyway, I, I, yeah, there's, uh, the, the, the Garrison family is, is a huge part of this story too, at least from the American side of things. Um, and, uh, and, and then, yeah, you got to get into the kind of international side of the socialist free trade activism. So you've got um, Florence Kelly in the United States, Edvard Bernstein, uh, Karl Kautsky in, in Germany, um, some, some German socialist internationalists like Kagawa and um uh, Kirby Page, Scott Nearing, I don't know. Yeah, I, I can keep going, but it depends on the time and the place. But this, this kind of the, the generational uh, uh, um, development of these, these, um, these activists is, is a fascinating sort of uh, who's who of, of people we've probably encountered in, in previous studies, but not, not necessarily in the context of, of their subscription to free trade ideas. Yes, yeah, so glo it's global. I mean, the names you rattled off, I mean, these are not, this is not a story about uh, just the United States or, or Britain, as your first book was really about the transatlantic dimensions of economic uh, economic thinkers. But but this is global, and and we've got to come back to Cobden, of course, because he's a big part of this book as sort of one of the, the the big inspirations for this idea. But I think before we get to Cobden, let's dissect that term free trade because it's it's I think we all know what it means, kind of. But there are similar terms that are used in frequent parlance that have an entirely different meaning words like free market which you mentioned in your book but i think equal access is there laissez faire is a term that's been used and bastardized so many times and perhaps there's words that like just suffer from contextual confusion like you know you're mentioning there's a temporal element to this you know that words mean something different in the 19th 20th and 21st centuries so how does this, how do we define the term free trade and then how does that equate to peace? So I, I you know, I think probably normally we, when we think of the term now, we think of it in the context of the 21st century, which is free trade being as, as close to zero 
um, barriers to trade as possible. And, and, and this is in part possible that we can have low tariffs in this day and age as we do. And that's because of the growth of direct taxation, um, the introduction of the in income tax in the early 20th century and, and other forms of direct taxation that have become the main way that gov uh, governments can pay uh, you know, for their expenditures, right? Um, but in the 19th century, in the mid 19th century, when the story begins, um, that's not that's not the case. And so free trade means something somewhat different. Uh, it, it meant tariffs for revenue purposes only, because before the uh, these forms of direct taxation, most governments got their most of their money from indirect taxation through tariffs. And and so um, free trade meant uh, tariffs for revenue only. That is as as low as possible that you could keep the tariffs while still maintaining government expenditures. And of course, the way this can connect them to the peace activism, even in that sense, is if you can lower government expenditures, if you can lower the costs of, say, standing armies and navies and maintaining colonies, then you can actually uh, make the demands on, on um, trade taxes that much lower, which then, of course, passes on to the consumer in the forms of making food and other necessities uh, uh, much more um, easily accessible and, and to obtain. So, you know, the connection to hunger prevention, um, to prosperity, as well as to peace and, and anti-imperialism. So you can kind of see how because of the way free trade had this connection to um, paying for government expenditures, it actually has a really interesting ways of, of tying into these ideas of peace and anti-imperialism from the from this left-wing perspective. And that perspective also has sort of, I don't know, it resonates with some of the ideas that are emerging in the 20th century about democracies as being naturally peaceful. And I, I know your book doesn't necessarily take up that idea as much as it takes up another idea, which is, that free traders believe in supranational institutions. They believe in global governance. They believe in the institutions that foster and provide global governments uh, governance to manage peace. Does this does this make the ideas of these thinkers? Does it make it divisive? Because it, it turns off nationalists in in many ways, and and that can be both. Because your book is really complicated, and and that's a good thing. I mean, but there's in your book you talk about. Uh, anti-imperial nationalists and and imperial nationalists, mm -hmm. but does world peace and free trade turn off both groups? Okay, it's a it's a great question, and 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 maybe we can come back to the democracy connection because I I mean I suppose you're right it does connect in certain ways especially to the um, the anti-colonial nationalists that become a much bigger part of the story from the uh, kind of from 1900 onwards, um, who see protecting um, their national sovereignty as, as a, a big part of how they understand their idea of nationalism, including economic nationalism as well as political, you know, their way towards independence is tied to the control over their natural resources. Um, so that is certainly gonna be a, a, a point of contention and tension between the, the, the left-wing globalists and the, the uh, anti-colonial nationalists in, in various parts of the, the world. Um, but I, I, do, I do think that the, the connection between the, the free trade and peace movement that I'm looking at and, and the way that they tie it to democracy is really important here too. Uh, uh, and maybe, maybe if we talk about the suffrage kind of dimensions of this too, that'll come through more clearly. Um, but yeah, as far as the tensions between the nationalists and these, these internationalists, these, these cosmopolitans that I'm looking at here, um, it is rather fast. So, I mean, I think one of the ways that this is sort of getting into that historiographical intervention that, that you mentioned too, is correcting these 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 tendencies to associate the late 19th, early 20th centuries with with laissez-faire, uh, with free markets, with free trade. 
Um, uh, and that, to me, that it, it, it often subsumes the historiography, both at the national level, uh, the study of empires tends to uh, uh, buy into these tropes as well as international relations theory. Um, but I think uh, uh, one of the corrections I'm trying to make here is that if you look at it from the left-wing globalist perspective, these leaders of the peace and anti-imperialist movement, this is not how they saw the world. Um, they saw the world order from at least around 1870 uh, onwards as, as an imperial order dominated by economic nationalist policies at home and abroad. So from these, what I call the, the imperialism of economic nationalism, right? This is essentially every rival empire except for the British. So you've got uh, the French empire, the German empire, um, the Russian empire, eventually the Japanese and Ottoman empires. And of course the United States uh, um, from around 1870 as well, um, that, that embrace economic nationalist policies at home um, and increasingly uh, carve out their own protectionist markets abroad. Um, and this is the scramble for Africa. This is the, the open door in, in China at play here, um, connected with the long depression of the late 19th century. Um, and so the, yes, there's gonna be some clear tensions between the left-wing globalists seeking to make a more peaceful world to um, devolve empires and those nationalists in this industrializing imperial world system who see the nation state as the pinnacle of, of you know, capitalist and Western development. Um, and this is the, the, the high point for them. Uh, and they can't really see an alternative to it. This kind of realist dog eat dog world is just something that they, they, they struggle to see beyond in contrast to the left-wing globalists. And so you have those, the, the imperialists who embrace economic nationalism who are kind of the big antagonists here. Um, but I also wanted to try to make sense to a certain extent, though, of those anti-colonial nationalists who also came to embrace economic nationalism, but not as an imperial tool, as an, as an anti-imperial tool. Um, and so you first start seeing this mainly in very uh, rather unusual circumstances in the late 19th, early century. You see them start to take uh, to, to grow and foster uh, only really in colonial spaces that are under um, British free trade imperial control where Britain, uh, the one empire that really embraces these free trade imperial ideas is coercively enforcing free trade, say in, in uh, early 1900s Ireland, um, early 1900s India, uh, Egypt, and, and, and around the First World War, where you start to see economic nationalism being more closely associated with, with anti-imperialism as a way to um, uh, uh, push back against the free trade dictates coming from Britain. Uh, this takes on something very different after 1945 when the global South uh, increasingly is demanding infant industrial protectionism to help it catch up to uh, the Western industrialized world, which had uh, you know, essentially been cheating by, by, by keeping the global South uh, um, down through, through um, um, free market advocacy. Right? So uh, it's this, this tension between the nationalists who are imperialists and the nationalists who are, are anti-imperialists uh, uh, that, that are also a big part of the story. Oh my goodness, Mark, I don't know where to begin with this because there is just, it's, it's the fine slices here are so fine that, you know, and, and your book is great for this. It delves into some of these, these places in, in greater depth. Um, but you mentioned Ireland, you mentioned British, the British Anglosphere more generally. Um, let's just take Ireland for a moment here and, and let's try and dissect some of these Groups, because you've got left-wing globalists and left-wing nationalists. You've got right-wing globalists and right-wing nationalists. In Ireland, you could be all of those things. I mean, you could be Eamon de Valera, who's ar arguing for self-sufficiency 
in the, the 1930s and yet is reaching out to the League of Nations to try and justify Ireland's existence on a, on a global stage. I mean, how do you, I mean, I can see the people that you look at as the thinkers here, but how do you distinguish between them and other people that are near them, aligned to them, or, you know, obviously you can see the people that are not like them, but how do you, how do you draw the distinctions between people that have very similar ideas? I mean, I mean, one of the ways I what I, I try to do as much as possible is to try to connect those ideas and the intellectual histories with, with the politicians and the political act, uh, you know, policies that that are associated with those ideas, um, and as directly as I as I can. So, I mean, the Irish example is a really interesting one. So, if you go back to the mid nineteenth century, Irish nationalists actually are more closely associated with the free traders, right? So, uh, um, uh, but this this changes by around nineteen hundred when you have the rise of people like Arthur Griffith. Um, who you know, creates the Sinn Féin party. And, and in fact, it's, I guess maybe another way of tying this in with, with ideas, I mentioned Richard Cobden, another big, big character in the first book, as well as this one is, is Friedrich List, the German-American political economist who is sort of the, the, uh, the counter to Richard Cobden's cosmopolitan ideas. And it's Friedrich List who in the mid 19th century develops these ideas of economic nationalism as, as an infant industrial policy for the industrializing world, as well as uh, a necessity for uh, uh, um, expanding imperially abroad to counteract uh, the more powerful British, right? But yeah, there, there is kind of a kind of a dualism to his ideas here, right? It's, it is to thwart the power of the British. So in that sense, it's anti-imperial, um, but he is very explicitly also saying that the Western industrializing powers also should embrace colonialism as, as a necessity to um, uh, uh, capitalist expansion and to the development of the market at home. Um, so it's also very imperial policy. However, people like Arthur Griffith, uh, these anti-colonial nationalists in the, in the colonial world that do embrace these ideas, they focus rather narrowly on the anti-imperial side of his ideas. Um, so Arthur Griffith, when he launches the Sinn Féin party and, and, and gives this speech that becomes a pamphlet in 1905, um, he's explicitly drawing on Frederick List and saying that this is the guy I believe and this is who we should all be subscribing to as a, as a counter to, to, to you know, see Ireland become the independent nation just like the, the Americans did when they embraced Frederick List's ideas uh, and just like the Germans and just like the French. Um, and, so, and so that's, I thought that's a really useful way. It's always nice when you have a politician like that who is explicitly drawing on these, these uh, intellectual ideas and undercurrents that I've been looking at. Um, and, and in a similar way, you could look at the, the, the Indian anti-colonial nationalists in the early 1900s, um, what's called the Swadeshi movement, uh, this grassroots movement of boycotts and, um, um, uh, and other ways of, of trying to, to re revitalize Indian industries that had been undermined by the British in, in a very similar context to the way the Irish are speaking about what happened to them under British rule, right? Um, and again, they look at it a very narrow way as an anti-imperial anti tool. Uh, but, but again, other great work like Monica Goswami and others have, have pointed to, uh, um, so like uh, one of the Indian nationalist leaders at this time, uh, uh, Sarkar, uh, he actually undertook the first Bengali translation of Frederick List's national system. So you can actually, in many cases, you can actually draw a direct line. And that's what I try to do is draw a direct line between these ideologies and these intellectual undercurrents and, and the politicians and, and activists who, who take it up. Yeah. So let me just uh, reiterate and plug away at that, because that is that is what your work has been so impressive 
for me is that is is that we have Richard Cobden and we have Frederick Least, and the two of them shape economic thought all over the world. Obviously, as a student of American history, that's been instrumental to understanding uh, Grover Cleveland and William McKinley, you know, and their and their ideas. Um, but what I what I love about this book is that it goes so far beyond that. You know, Pax Economica talks about from Cobden and List to Du Bois, to Gandhi, to Trump. I mean, so that to me is the big the big takeaway from this book is that we can see the follow through. And I'm going to ask you a question about intergenerate intergenerational thought. But let's go back mm. to democracy just just for a moment, because, you know, we kind mm. of we kicked off this meandering question about. Uh, the various types of left and right, global and nationalist. But what about that idea of democracy? Is that something that tethers a lot of these thinkers together? I think so. Yeah, and 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 I, that was one of the kind of these these broader connections is one of the things I really spent a lot of time with early on trying to to you know why was it that all these women suffragists of the early 20th century were involved in all these free trade and peace organizations that I kept finding it. And, and, and that's what drew me back again to the mid 19th century, where I feel like this is all kind of starting, um, you know, mid 19th century is when you have the beginnings of a truly global economic system. I think that's a part of it, but, um, but it, again, it goes back to this, this free trade movement in Britain that was, yes, it was about making food cheaper by getting rid of the tariffs on grain, uh, uh, and that was obviously uh, uh, um, politically uh, uh, digestible in a big way uh, to, to uh, industrializing Britain, where a lot of people were struggling to put food on the table up until that point. Um, but connected to that is is why why was there a tariff on foreign grain? Why were there the corn laws in the first place? And and so according to this left wing critique, it's to artificially you know uh, um, help sustain the aristocratic landed elites who tend to be militant, who tend to uh, want to go to war. Uh, and, and so they are kind of responsible for the, the militant geopolitical conflicts of the era and, and imperial expansion and then why they feel the need to maintain and even expand empires. Um, so the de democratic connection here is that if you undermine these protectionist landed aristocratic elites, you undermine their uh, economic power base, you undermine their influence over foreign policy making, and you open the door then to greater democratic growth. So that this is this is also where the women's suffrage movement is going to come into play too. This connection between peace and anti-imperialism, but also democratization. I think that is such a key part of the left-wing free trade uh, uh, approach here is that the connection between democracy and free trade for them is um, very closely important. Uh, and you can understand that through the the tendency of the aristocrats to be associated with the opposite, with protectionism, with monopolies, with imperial expansion. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So how do these ideas spread then? Because uh, in, your, in your first book, you talked about Cobden clubs, and I imagine that's part of the story here as well. But 
how else does does the ideas of free trade spread in the golden age? Let's just look at the golden age of uh, peace activism, say, which is is often seen as that period before World War One, and maybe a little bit after World War One, until you get you know the the Kellogg Briand Pact and the the outlawry yeah. of of war. But that that's kind of the sweet spot for the peace movement. That's when there's the most people that are you know going to Lake Bohonk conferences and. and how is this message of free trade being spread at that time? I mean, uh, you know, aside from the, the sort of usual tools of, of, of you know, propaganda, you know, pamphlets, books, uh, stump speaking, and these sorts of things that would have been so common. I, I mean, this is, this is very much a story of the development of transnational network and using the imperial tools of globalization uh, to undermine empires, or at least that's the idea, to undermine uh, imperialism and war through these new tools, which are, are also becoming something of a phenomenon, right? The, the, the telegraph, uh, uh, the, the successful landing of the transatlantic telegraph in, in the late 1860s, the completion of the transcontinental railway in 1869, the opening of Suez, right? A lot of these things are tied to either westward expansion, settler colonialism, uh, maintenance uh, uh, and expansion and connection of the British empire, for example, with, in the case of Suez. Um, but these are also tools of, of communication and, and uh, the spreading of ideas that uh, the peace movement takes very good advantage of. And so that's why I think partly you can explain the growth of the international peace movement. The way they start working closer together uh, is because um, the, the the way that they can communicate with one another is is becoming something much uh, more efficient and effective through these new tools of globalization. So I think that's key is their, their ability to use these these tools that are often associated with the expansion and consolidation of empires to uh, in the hopes of at least undermining them as well. Uh, and so that's that's a key part of of I think the the pre World War One story. Um, and then and then of course you get the First World War itself, which. So we can see we can see the, the, the outbreak of World War One as some t tend to portray it as, as a failure of the international peace movement, um, but uh, that's not how the peace movement itself saw it. And of course, whenever there's times of war like that, this actually would motivate peace activists to action. So the Mohawk uh, meetings are are great up until that point, but you really start to see the consolidation and the and the growth of a new international peace movement in many ways out of the First World War, which is much more closely associated with this new generation, much more active generation that's uh, associating these these ideas also with, with women's suffrage and how we can use peace and anti-imperial networks to, to, to advance the women's suffrage's cause to, to create democratic um, uh, equitability uh, in many ways uh, throughout the globe. Don't you think uh, the middle class and the emergence of a middle class helped spread thought like about free trade and peace activism? I mean, that's a great question. I mean, they are by and large middle-class. So um, I think that's that's uh, uh, certainly at play here. And and so the growth of the middle-class um, in that sense is, is important. I mean, it's, I, I kind of expected to see a bit more of, of, uh, of you know, um, the grassroots network transcending this, but it, this is, this is a, a, a mostly white middle-class movement from its inception in the mid-19th century all the way through, you know, it garners a handful of aristocrats to its to its cause uh, and, and maybe some from the working class, but uh, um, this, in that sense too, it is, it is it maintains that middle class connection there. Um, but so I, so I think that the growth and expansion of the middle class um, certainly plays its part uh, in ways I hadn't really, you know, developed as much in the book, but it's, it's a really good point, yeah. 
Well, I mean, you do you do develop it to a certain extent because you 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 do talk about you know the the demographics and the characteristics of these movements. And and you know, if we're starting in the 1870s, you know, we have the emergence of Marxism uh, in and around you know the 1840s, 1850s, and that 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 trickles right through the book. You've got a whole chapter on Marxism, so maybe you could you could talk to us a little bit about how free trade intersects with Marxism, and then the the intellectual offshoots of Marxism that come in later years in the 20th century. I mean, yeah, the, the Marxist chapter, I mean, what I try to do with all the chapters is to show that this isn't static. I think that was how uh, I initially kind of thought even it was going to be, but but realizing that this is a story of evolution of ideas and, and policies over time as, as um, these 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 movements uh, uh, adapted themselves to this changing uh, global you know, capitalist landscape across the, the 100 plus years that, uh, that I look at. Yeah, the Marxist one is a fascinating one, and here's here's I guess another example of those direct connections you can draw. And and I so I one of the things I try to emphasize here is is the hegemonic influence again of of British free trade ideas from the nineteenth century onwards. And you can see this in a very direct way on Marx and Engels, who are both living in England in the eighteen forties at the high point of of the British free trade movement, right, culminating in the overturning of Corn Laws in eighteen forty six. Uh, Engels, who's living in Manchester, right? Manchester School is another term for cognitivism. Manchester, England, being kind of the hub of this, this left wing free trade economic ideology that's taking root. Uh, that's that's where uh, uh, Engels uh, is situated, and you know, he brags about having gone to, I think he says hundreds of of anti corn law. Uh, he must be exaggerating. I can't imagine that that, that the uh, the messaging is all that different. <laughs> Uh, that you'd have to go hundreds of times, but he's 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 intimately uh, familiar with with this middle class free trade movement, and and then um, uh, Marx, when he arrives a little bit later in the eighteen forties, uh, um, uh, also establishes himself there. And so I think it's you know they are there, and and these influences affect the why um, Karl Marx then gives a um, a very important speech um, in Belgium uh, in the in the late eighteen forties, in which he says. The socialists of the world should be in favor of free trade, uh, and and here I guess is an important part of the evolution of of the socialist subscription to free trade. Marx and Engels are not full blown subscribers to Manchester liberalism from a socialist perspective, um, but they do see what Britain has done by when Britain turns to free trade in eighteen forty six. Marx and Engels, living there at the time, see this as the next small p progressive step towards capitalist development, which thus means. It's the next stage towards getting us closer to the proletarian revolution. And so from this more kind of pragmatic rationale, um, Marx and Engels say that the socialists of the world should be free traders because this is this is the proper next step of the capitalist stage of development. Of course, this, this gets really kind of, I think, fascinating, but also complicated once you get uh, to the time of, of Vladimir Lenin who's kind of enunciating his theories of imperialism and Karl Kautsky and Edward Bernstein uh, in Germany. Um, so once you get to this time of the early 1900s, uh, the First World War, uh, socialist subscriptions to free trade takes on a very new resonance um, because this is, I mean, if you, re you really read Lenin as well as Kautsky and, 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 um, and Bernstein, these, these intellectual leaders of, of socialism in many ways of, of Europe, um, they they also associate free trade with a more peaceful world in the mid 19th century, but they are 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 able to recognize in ways that Marx and Engels couldn't because of 
many many ways when they when they are alive um that the uh, this isn't how capitalism ended up developed they don't the capitalists and the socialists don't follow this free trade track like i said from around 1870 onwards most of the industrializing world turns towards protectionism as part of its prescriptions to the to the uh, the global capitalist crises that they face and, and as a, uh, a way of expanding empires um, and so Lenin and all these other socialist theorists of imperialism, much like Hobson at the time too, who, who Lenin directly borrows from, uh, a non-Marxist uh, in Britain, they, they see this, the growth of protectionism, the turn to protectionism from around 1870, the growth of monopoly capitalism, uh, and thus the, the search for new markets through, through imperial expansion as all connected, right? So you can start to see there, if you're associating protectionism with the growth of monopolies, and, and the growth of imperial expansion, uh, you can start to see how socialist internationalists increasingly are able to embrace free trade ideas and are able to turn to the speeches and writings of Karl Marx and, and Engels from the mid 19th century to do so, right? So one of the fascinating things I came across in, in the American context, at least, um, is the first English language translation of Marx's speech where he advocates for why socialists of the world should be free traders. And that was uh, undertaken by, uh, a woman in her 20s uh, in Philadelphia named Florence Kelly. Uh, and, and she does so because she wants to influence the, the great debate of 1888 between the free trader Grover Cleveland and, and the economic nationalist, uh, the Harrison Republican uh, challenger, um, and to kind of stick it to her father, who's, who's one of the, the most diehard protectionists in Congress at the time, uh, um, William Pigarin Kelly. Uh, and so she's she's the one that kind of is, is responsible. So it's already beginning in the 1880s. You start even in the American context, seeing how socialists and nationalists are 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 becoming more avowed free traders. Uh, and this just picks up an, a, a deeper resonance as people at the time are able to see the connections between uh, protectionism and imperial expansion. And, and, and again, so, so important to the wider story at will play here, but very, very key to understanding how this evolution of Marxist subscriptions of free trade and peace um, become so much stronger uh, as as we seep into the to the early 1900s when when economic nationalism and economic autarky and, and imperial retrenchment become the name of the game. And I just wonder, you know, listening to this about you know the the application and the idea is there is there often a disconnect between you know Marx is allowed to just have the idea because he's not Lenin he doesn't have to apply it and Lenin in many ways too writes the book on on the early Bolshevik Soviet state, but then, you know, when Stalin is there, the economic policy is socialism in one country. It's not spread the message around the world. It's not free trade for everyone. It's let's sort our own house out first. And so how, how does that play out too? You, you have the idea and then you have the application and, and not all of these thinkers in your book have the opportunity to apply their thought into reality, but some of them do. And how does that play out? I mean, one, one of the things I try to do in each of the chapters uh, to a varying degrees, although it's not the main thrust of, of, of most of the chapters, uh, except for chapter one, which is to explore the nationalist kind of counter narrative to all this. And so even within the Marxist chapter, I, I felt like I had to take into account the fact that not all socialists were internationalists. Right. And, and there were actually socialists who were quite nationalistic social, you know, socialism for one country, uh, as Stalin will, will famously make it. Uh, that's the Soviet Russia becomes one of those gleaming examples of socialist nationalism by the 1930s. Right. And, and um, 
so, so and I think, and one of the things this allows me to do is to draw out the fact that, you know, in, in certain contexts in, in France, in the United States, in, in Germany, you do have the socialist internationalists like the Bernsteins and the, and the Florence Kellys um, and, the, and the Crystal Eastmans. Um, but you also have them at kind of at loggerheads with the socialist nationalists who see socialism as something that should just be applied to one country and who tend to subscribe to to Frederick ideas often directly and so you, and, and who often end up being on the right spectrum of, of, pol of politics and who end up supporting their nation's imperial aggrandizements and the imperial programs, right? You see, even see this in a very interesting way with the split within the, the Social Democratic Party in, in Germany. Um, the, the SPD, the, the left and right split during the First World War itself is in many ways this, this rift between the pro and, and anti-imperialist segments and pro and anti-war segments. Well, the liberals in England as well, right? I mean, the liberal party in England, it's the same thing. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, there's kind of that and that and that sort of opens the way for the Labour Party to become much more influential. And, they, and then the Labour Party in Britain ends up embracing in a much bigger way by the 1920s, the free trade ideas of the liberals and sort of merges the liberal ideas of free trade into the, to the Labour Party, the Lib Lab co coalition, as, as some have called it. Right? And um, uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, in the British context is probably the best. I, 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 I suppose I should mention that uh, the British socialists are probably unsurprisingly, um, uh, the most numerous that, that subscribe to free trade ideas, the Bertrand Russells, as well as the Labour Party itself, uh, to a certain extent, um, especially the connection between a, a more interconnected world and, and a more peaceful world that, uh, that the Labour Party maintains uh, to a certain extent, at least up until the 1940s. Um, and so, so yeah, so again, this tension between the, the socialist nationalists and the socialist internationalists is, is an important one here. And, it's, and it's, it, was, it was surprising to me how, how often, how neatly they tended to, to kind of uh, fall under the, the protectionist versus free trade camps as well. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's, this, is the, this is the brilliance of the book is that it's like a giant Venn diagram of thinkers, you know, and there's all these subplots that they can fit into, like, there's the Georgists and the single taxers. There's the anti-imperialists, the nationalist revolutionaries, the socialists, the religious, because your, your book covers religious objectors as well. It's this Venn diagram that not any one person inhabits all of uh, as, as an idea or as, as, as a thinker. And it, it, it makes telling the story, I imagine, difficult, but also really rewarding to understand how this all fits together. It, was, it, it took me a long time to figure out how to structure this book. I'm not gonna lie, I, you know, and because I thought about going, I, I, I thought maybe there'd be something useful too, and maybe there still would be to sort of doing a chronological approach rather than this sort of thematic approach, each chapter covering the hundred years or so between the mid 19th and the 20th century. Um, but I, in a way, I felt like it was going to become too unwieldy, as you say, the Venn diagram. Trying, trying to make sense of that. It, it, I, this, this was the way I came up with, uh, with it was so that you know, sort of to compartmentalize the, the, uh, the, the. Uh, liberal radicals who were kind of maybe most most important to the creation of this movement in the in the mid nineteenth century, then followed by the Marxists and then um, the women suffragists who embraced these free trade ideas, and, and then and then the Christian uh, left wing uh, peace movement that that embraces these free trade ideas, and, and kind of saving them to the end because in many ways they are the amalgamation. This Venn diagram is as close as I could get to them all coming together, where you do see the socialists and the, the liberal radicals and and the feminists all kind of coalescing around ideas of Unitarianism, these kind of left-wing versions of Christianity that uh, uh, became so closely associated with the free trade movement. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that was, it was challenging, it was tricky, but that was, that was the hope too, is that um, 
you know, even some of the names are the same in each of the chapters as they appear, but in different contexts. So you've got Jane Addams showing up, of course, as the leader of, of the women's peace movement of the, uh, 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 of the First World War, but you also see her earlier on in, the, in, in chapter two uh, as one of the few female members, officers of the Anti-Imperialist League that's founded in 1898 within the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, um, but also her close association during the 1920s and 1930s with these these Christian peace organizations, uh, uh, the way that her name keeps popping up. And then, of course, as the um, uh, the Christian peace movement starts overlapping in, in much greater ways with these other movements, like the, the Young Women's Christian Association. Uh, I did not expect that to be uh, such a big part of this story. And, and, and I have to give due credit to um, the archivists uh, at Smith College who... Uh, I, I was fortunate to spend a, a month there doing research in the, the feminist peace collections that they have there, which are amazing. But I gave a talk to uh, the archivist towards the end of my stay there about this, you know, what I was trying to do here, connecting the women's suffrage movement with this peace internationalist of, of, of free trade. And uh, one of the archivists came up afterwards and said, you need to look at the Young Women's Christian Association papers. And so then she rolls out these boxes and boxes that are just covered in dust. I feel like aside from the archives themselves, I might've been the first one over, and they're just labeled tariff reform. And, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's what put people off, but, you know, I opened this up and, and, and what I discovered was just this remarkable story of how the Young Women's Christian Association, perhaps uh, the largest women's empowerment um, organization in the world, how it became uh, in, involved within the free trade and peace movement. Uh, and this is something I'm able to trace out from the 1920s onwards. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the way that this ends up leading to a very close association between the women's peace movement and um, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration uh, is it, it, very important here too, right? So Cordell Hull, the long, long serving uh, secretary of state under, under Franklin Roosevelt, um, he actually gets put in touch with the women's peace movement uh, directly and they become very close allies um, for years and years to come. Um, and, and support uh, holds various reforms of trade liberalization reforms and, and, uh, uh, and kind of setting the stage for, for subsequent women's peace and, and free trade activism after the, uh, the Second World War. Okay, so this is probably a good time to talk about intergenerational, uh, the sort of legacy of, of thought. I mean, I just wanted to say before we move on, because your book does cover feminism and institutional uh, groups like, you know, the YMCA or the women's uh, YMCA and things that have been covered by other historians. But I think that's such a telling story. Like Megan Threlkel covers, you know, women peace activists, for example, Ian Terrell covers, you know, groups like the YMCA that were influential in peace activism. But what your book does is it finds that box of tariff reform papers in the boxes that Ian and, and Megan probably looked through and goes, and there's this free trade element to it, which is remarkable, I think, because not only is it adding to our understanding of, of the scholarship that's out there, but it really rounds out the picture that th these ideas, they were not just um, political in nature in the, in the strict sense of being political as like, you know, ideas about policy and democracy. They're also about how we trade and how we trade is how we interact with one another. So again, I'm just sort of doing the work of plugging your book here, but that's why it's, it's so important for us to understand. But one of the other things that you told me that I found fascinating, and this was before the book came out, was you told me that Cordell Hull was known as the Tennessee Cobden. And he's he's one of these people that plays an intergenerational role in the story. And so I wanted to give you a chance to say something about that intergenerational intellectualism, because there are, are several thinkers here that span paradigms or what we might consider paradigms. So 
who are they and, and why are they so important? And, and I guess, yeah, and maybe connecting it to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era in a more explicit way, which is maybe more implicit here, but you're right, intergenerational or, or the importance of generations is, is so key here. I mean, I think a lot of the studies that try to make sense of the, um, the freer trade system that comes into being during and after the Second World War, I feel like it tends to focus very kind of narrowly on the 1920s and 30s, these kind of intellectual activist and, and the political movements um, of the 20s and 30s. And, and of course, Cordell Hull fits there as a Secretary of State under FDR from what, 33 on. And um, uh, But I think one of the points I'm trying to make with this story too, by looking, by beginning this story as I do with the mid 19th century and tracing these, these actors, some of whom actually are are the same in the late 19th century that ends up shaping uh, this this reformation of the, the global capitalist system in the, in the mid 20th century. Uh, and that is you can't, I don't think you can understand uh, this this reformation, this, this trade liberalization initiatives uh, that we, we associate with the post 1945 era, uh, this US led era of, of freer trade uh, without understanding the the fact that these people who were in, in charge of those reforms, they came of age in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So how, how can you, I just don't, I, my, one of the things I hope is a takeaway here is that to truly understand the, the reformation of, of the post-1945 world, you have to, you have to understand um, who these people were and, and, and the world that they, that they lived in and the ideas that they engaged with and, and subscribed to that, that were so popular in the late 19th, early 20th century, including Henry Georgism, which is, I think, uh, uh, another one of these really important but neglected ideas nowadays. Um, and so Cordell Holes is a great example here, uh, again, uh, as the kind of Secretary of State responsible for uh, turning the United States from protectionism towards a freer trade policy beginning in the 1930s with the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act uh, and then um, helping to set the stage for the general agreement on tariffs and trade in the 19, late 1940s, which becomes the World Trade Organization in 1995. Um, you know, Cordell Hull, yes, uh, nicknamed the Tennessee Cobden for, for reasons now that we hopefully can have a better understanding of by tracing the role of Cobdenism on all these um, these these um, these free traders that I'm looking at, but he got his political start as a 17-year-old Trump uh, a stump speaker for uh, uh, Grover Cleveland during the Great Debate of 1888. And so, um, and then he talks about in his memoirs uh, about how the First World War itself is also such a transformative event for how he connects the protectionist imperial system and the outbreak of the First World War. And, and it really entrenches this idea that um, something more international is necessary to create a more peaceful world. And this is this is why he's called the Tennessee Column. This is why he's the father of the United Nations. And he's why he's considered the sort of progenitor of, of, of these, these um, supranational trade liberalization initiatives like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, right? So uh, again, you can't understand that though without understanding these the, the, the left-wing globalist uh, uh, story that's unfolding across the, the, the hundred years before this. Absolutely. And your last chapter is as powerful as that story about Cordell Hull. And, and it reflects the Cobden legacy into the present day. So one of my one of my favorite stories in the book is about Irish businessman Brendan O'Regan, who created the Shannon Duty Free Zone. So if anyone's ever flown into Ireland and they've not gone to Dublin, chances are they've gone through Shannon, which was this area created. It's called a duty free zone. 
And and incidentally, just a you know quick aside, Brendan O'Regan's uh, restaurant in Shannon Airport is responsible for giving the world and the Irish coffee. So that's something we should also celebrate. All right. Um, ah. But this free trade ideology that 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 he has, um, you know, you use O'Regan in the book as a foil for the Washington Consensus, and you also then talk about neoliberalism and neocolonialism as a challenge to that. So how does that? How do you how does that friction persist into the 80s, 90s, 2000s? Uh, and yeah, I, I, I really. Yeah, the, 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 the Brandon O'Regan duty free story and, and it's and, and the way that some anti-colonial uh, nationalists like him, which is really what he is, are associating more closely with the anti-imperialism of free trade uh, is an important part of this post 1945 story, which, again, we have to look back to the hundred years preceding that to understand exactly how that can be, um, but I but I think yeah this this is another important tension that that's at work here in the post nineteen forty five era. So you've got neo colonialism, um, as as Nkrumah famously sort of um, um, uh, capitalized in his in his volume, um, criticizing you know this kind of informal economic imperialism. Of the Western powers, even after, in, even amidst decolonization, right? Um, which I think we often associate with, and, and historians deserve quite a bit of this, this the, the, the probing for the two, which is that um, we associate neocolonialism most mostly with free trade imperialism, because the United States becomes the free trade hegemon and becomes an advocate of free trade, at least rhetorically, during this period. Um, that neocolonialism is associated more closely with this. But I, I, one of the things I try to point out in, in this, this chapter is that if you actually look at the main critics coming from uh, UNCTAD, United uh, um, Nations uh, uh, Congress, on, Congress on Trade and Development, and then the uh, new international economic order that comes into being, um, their base criticisms of neocolonialism, of, of Western neocolonialism, is the continued protectionist policies being practiced by the West against the global South that's trying to catch up to um, the West after decades, even centuries of, of colonial exploitation. Right? Um, and so there's, you know, the rhetoric of the anti-imperialism free trade is very prominent within these, these global South uh, leaders, these advocates of, of, a, of a new international economic order, um, at the same time that they're advocating for infant industrial protectionism for, for themselves as a way to help them catch up, you, you know, at least temporarily speaking. Um, and this is gonna create the tensions then between the NIE, you know, not so much with the, 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 the left-wing globalist movement, which in many ways has evolved and, 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 it, and it allows for and sympathizes with these, these you know, temporary protectionist demands of the global South, but it creates tensions with this right-wing free trade um, movement that's picking up steam in such a big way from around the same time from the 1970s onwards especially the neoliberal uh, uh right-wing free trade ideas that are that are starting to be picked up by um reagan and thatcher and, and you know, of course hayek and the, the mount pelleran society as, as so much great work has been uncovering over, over um, recent years and is focused on um but it's 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 you know the the, the neoliberal right-wing free traders are the ones that are going to be most opposed to the, the demands of the NIEO. Uh, and I think in, in important ways, very different from the left-wing free trade activism that I'm looking at, although there are some really interesting kind of overlaps there too, or at least there's a shared intellectual tradition, tradition that they're drawing upon 
but there are some really important differences between the free trade and peace movement uh, from, the, from the left-wing side of things and this neoliberal free trade act, activism and, and advocacy that's, that's uh, picking up in such a big way um, from the 1970s onwards. And I think the, the, the biggest differences there too, and this is what, you know, Cordell Hull was famous for his, his emphasis on non-interventionism, the good neighbor policy and things like that. But that is another thing that's closely associated with the free trade and peace movement going back to Cobden himself. And that is another key element here is foreign policy and non-interventionism. You should never force uh, our ideas and policies on other people. Um, you know, they, they should just want to emulate us. And, and our successes is sort of the idea here. Neoliberals are very different in this. So as much as there's a shared kind of tradition of, of, of subscribing to free trade and connecting it to peace and, and integration and supranational governance, um, a big difference here is that the right-wing neoliberals um, are quite willing and, and quite you know, encouraging of military interventionism to uh, make this happen, right? So this, this is a huge difference between the two. Um, and I think the other one is that where the free trade and peace movement from the mid 19th century on the left side of things saw a very close association with free trade and, and democratization. Um, the neoliberals increasingly are, 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 they see democracy as increasingly an impediment to a free trade world. And so they become much more cozy with authoritarians, dictators, right? I think, uh, you know, overthrowing of Allende in Chile and putting in, you know, putting in Pinochet as just one of many examples of how they see democracy as an impediment to the creation of free trade worlds. This is very different from, from the, um, the, the close association with democracy and free trade and peace that the, the left-wing actors I look at um, subscribe to. That brings us into the 21st century, and we're now almost, what, almost 25 years into the, the next century, and we have a big election coming up. Actually, not just one, obviously, but the, the one on my mind is obviously the United States, but I think this year, from what I'm reading, more people will go to the polls than ever before in global history. Uh, there is, since records have been kept since 1800, more people are going to vote for their leaders this year than ever before, and so where does where does that take us? I mean, where does the left intellectual thought on economic policy where is it now in 2024? It's uh, I I'd say it's it's in pretty dire straits. Um, not not to I you know, I don't want to end on a on a pessimistic note. Uh, um, uh, but it's it's I mean what I hope is is that this you know recovering this this lost left wing globalist history um, will be helpful for informing. Um, how, how you know, the people struggling for a new foreign policy, a left foreign policy and left foreign economic policy uh, as they are right now uh, might do. I mean, there are some examples, I mean, you know, the fair trade movement is something I touched on in the last chapter, which is a really important you know, kind of ethical, ethical embraces of, of globalism, but through regulation, through protections of, of, of labor and environment um, um, is something that's still very much there. And I'd say that the fair trade movement has sort of become um, the mainstay of of the the remaining left wing globalists of our age, uh, or or perhaps the cooperative movement as well. I think the, the two of those have sort of amalgamated to a certain extent. So the international cooperative movement, the fair trade movement, are certainly still there, um, even if uh, to a certain extent maybe they've forgotten their own kind of pacifistic lineage and heritage. Uh, um, so that might be useful for for them to bring back. But uh, um, but no, I mean, yeah. The neoliberal era of the 90s and early 2000s, I, you know, we, we were seeing the, the, the just desserts, I think, of those policies, uh, of, of its failures to 
support and expand democracy. We, we, we're, I feel like we're starting to see a, a very real kind of evidence of how this has been undermining democracy promotion uh, and, and not just in the rest of the world, but in the West itself. I, you know, uh, the United States, uh, Britain, <laughs> democracy is, 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 I feel like in dire straits, even as, even as those two countries seem to be turning uh, uh, to these economic nationalist uh, policies in a, in a big way that's 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 I think um, rippling around the world amongst right wing nationalists, um, and so I think this is going to be an important challenge. I, I honestly I think 2016 might have, as far as I can tell, it, it was the first presidential campaign in the United States where we had uh, two presidential candidates for the major parties both um, advocating for protectionist policies at the same time. Um, and we're going to see it again. It, it seems like uh, in in the newest uh, uh, round of uh, of uh, electioneering here. Um, but Mark, just to just to lift the mood a little bit here, because you're right. I don't want to end on a. I mean, one of the things that your book made me think of was that the thought is constantly evolving, and I think you're you're right that 2016, 2020. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Is it's it is a deer, right? In terms of like you know, especially in the United States, but also in the UK as well. Brexit, we saw, I mean, that is definitely uh, repudiation of free trade, you know, the and the three years that followed the, the vote of the Brexit vote was like, let's see how far we can sink and move away from, uh, you know, relations with the EU and, you know, collaborative ventures on trade and, 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 and politics. But in the same breath, I wonder, like, it does seem that the thinkers that are out there now are coming up with really interesting ideas about how the new global economy will incorporate some pretty, uh, what I would think are like mainstays of the left now, which is climate change has got to be built into this, right? So mm. green economic reforms, whether it's Green New Deal in the US, whether it's you know the, the green Marxism that's coming out of Japan and intellectual thought in Japan, there's also certainly ideas about uh, global governance that that's, you know, how do we transform global governance? So I don't know. I mean, are there green shoots there of a new left emerging? And if if so, I mean, I think you can you could probably say that it comes from not Cobden necessarily, but some of these other, you know, uh, thinkers that we that your book does discuss. Yeah. So maybe indirectly. Uh, yeah, I think that, that you know, uh, that's, a, that's a good point. And green shoots. I like that, too. Um, yeah, and I and I sh and I should correct myself. Twenty sixteen, of course, we saw the, the the rise of the return of the Republican Party as the party of protectionism under Trump. Uh, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, still sort of sticking to the to the neoliberal kind of uh, uh, trade policies that that have become so so entrenched. But um, it's it's twenty twenty with Biden uh, that we start to see this against Trump, and we're going to see that showdown again in twenty twenty four. So it's really fascinating how how uh, in, in the American context we're seeing the creation of what I consider. Uh, a new Washington consensus based around uh, uh, um, industrial policies and protectionism, and, and, and we were talking earlier about them. Uh, 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 the way that this is aligning with with labor unions across political spectrums in fascinating ways. But yes, no, to your question about uh, how this might help influence this uh, a new foreign policy for the left, I think is an interesting because I, I, you know it's not to say there's I think there's still quite a few socialist nationalists out there who might actually be quite. Um, find a lot that they like with with the way that the world is is is, is turning as far as these these ideas and, and policies are concerned, and especially the kind of the turn against neoliberalism, which you know 
for, for understanding the reasons has been uh, received a lot of the, the, the animus um, from the left as well as from the right in more recent years. Um, but I guess, yeah, to your point about, I, I think one of my, I think as I, as I reflected on it in the, in the very end here um, in, in the book is, is to get us thinking about how would this have looked to the left-wing globalists that, I, that my book is, is concerned with, right? What would they say? And, and of course there are handfuls that still you know, are, are you know, pockets that, that still exist out there. Um, I think they would say, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That 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 um, um, you know, the world seemed to be on the right track immediately after the Second World War. Then the Cold War came along and, and distorted it and created a mannequin divide between the socialist East and and the, and the, the um, capitalist West, so to speak, and, and amongst other things. Um, but the supranational structures, if you know, administered you know effectively and by the right people, uh, you know. The, the, the left-wing globalists were increasingly pushed out of, of um, uh, positions of power from the 1970s onwards. Um, but if you could, I, I think that if if those sorts of left-wing globalists uh, and, uh, who can trace these the kind of ideological lineages back to what for, for what I try to do here um, uh, can you know work within these systems and transform them, reform them from within. Um, you know, turn the world trade or you know, I think this is what my people, the people in the book would say is like, you know, reform the world trade organization or replace it with something that actually has more teeth, replace the United Nations with something that has more teeth, uh, uh, much like they, they were advocating for with, with the League of Nations before that. If, if the United Nations is not fit for purpose and the WTO are not fit for purpose for maintaining a more peaceful, um, uh, less geopolitically conflict-ridden world, um, then we should replace it with, with, with something that can maintain and regulate and and uh, uphold those 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 globalist values that they um, have advocated for so long. Well, I think the book gives us a great sense of the wellsprings of, of of contemporary thought, and that's a perfect reason to have you on the show. I mean, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era to the present day. I mean, the connections are you you can't argue about them. They're there. They're real. And if you buy Mark's book, you'll get to read all about how they go from back then to today. So, thanks a million, Mark, for joining us. Ah, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.